Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mark. Today is episode 72, and we're going to be interviewing Adam B. How are you doing today, sir? Doing very well, Jim. Thank you so much for the invite to be able to be of service. Yes, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this for us. So let's dive in here, get the party started, as I usually say, and tell us about childhood. Well, my... um... My upbringing was in a small town just outside of Pittsburgh called McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and back in the 70s, I'm a 50-year-old man, so back in the 70s when I was born and raised, uh, I came up in a blue-collar military family, so there was a lot of drinking. I was taught drinking, hard work, and, you know, work hard, play harder type of thing. And uh, my family suffered from alcoholism and addiction. Uh, it was around me all the time to the extent that uh, I'm the first born of 18 grandkids. And uh, oh my, God. my mom and dad were divorced when I was three uh, from physical and emotional abuse. She left them. And then he, he cheated on her uh, with a lady that they work with, but which created quite a lot of animosity between the two of them. And still to this day continues. Uh, so yeah, me and my mother moved back in with my grandparents, her, her side of the family. And she had uh, siblings that would babysit me because she was going to school and working a job, trying to better her life and herself. So she was 20 years old at this time. She was 24 because I was four and the, the ongoing joke for a long time in my, in my family's parties and get togethers was how they would set up an ironing board table with me at the age of four and feed me and play bar with me and feed me shots of whatever beer, wine, sometimes whiskey. They would blow weed smoke in my face to get me to pass out so that they could, you know, do their thing. And you were around five years old? Yeah, four or five years old when this, when this first happened. And it it went on for quite some time. And uh, so they, they inactivated that gene, you know, that I believe addicts and alcoholics have because the genealogy of my family shows you know once they start they can't stop and uh, that was my history uh, in the beginning of it and then um, so my grandfather was a career military and he retired uh, when I was seven years old He, he retired from the United States Army and went to work in the steel mills so every Friday after that I became his drinking buddy he would take me to the local bar that he would go to set me up at the at the bar with um you know my pepsi and cheesy poofs and then i'd have a little shot glass that they put in front of me that everybody would fill up with beer so at seven years old i'm already muscling up to a bar and watching my and and the whole time i'm in my mind i'm like oh i'm his little buddy you know he's you know doing this to hang out with me and the whole time that that's happening it's it's more like because i had the blonde hair little blonde hair blue eyes i was a chick magnet so he would leave me sitting there to attract women and then you know he's over there talking and dancing with the females and i'm sitting there wondering you know where's where's grandma at you know and then i would pass out in the in the booth of the barn and he would drag me home and that that went on for quite some time too uh until I was around 11 years old, 12 years old. Then my mom and I finally got our own place uh, after she graduated school. But again, that's when, you know, alcohol was in me. And me and my friends, that's when we started drinking on our own at 12 years old, uh, getting an older brother or one of my friends to buy cases of beer. And uh, that's when we just started drinking alcoholically. You know, the first time I ever sat down with my own case of beer, there wasn't just drinking six. I drank all 24 and got violently ill. So that just created no consequences to it either. It just, you know, I got in a little bit of trouble. It was kind of funny to them. Um, but yeah, it just that, that no consequence having enabling toxic family behavior that a lot of us know, I definitely, uh, you know, it's a miracle that I didn't end up worse off than I did at an earlier age, tell you the truth. Uh, so when I hit that age, 
I grew I'm I'm six foot five, so I hit a growth spurt um at the age of 12, 13, where I, I was like six foot two, real big guy, bigger than everybody else. And that's when high school, you know, the coaches were like, come play football. So I started playing football. And uh, there were, again, there were no consequences for football, for athletes that excelled. Uh, so we, when I entered junior high and then high school, the, the football team got to drink. We were winning a lot of games. We won two state titles during my time there, which made us untouchable. And I, I'd like to uh, equate it to like the local police when they would raid our kegger parties they would throw everybody else out and then sit there and drink with the football team. And so there was, again, there was just no consequences whatsoever. And we just did whatever we wanted to within respect of not drastically breaking the law. But once we, you know, we were living just below that level. And so again, I just had no consequence having life. I was really had no direction as to, scholastically preparing me for my future other than football and unfortunately you know schools don't let you in just because you could play football you have to have some grades to go along with that and uh, so when I graduated high school my dad knew what was going on Uh, he was in my life but every other weekend you know visitation stuff so he wasn't fully aware until I stopped going out of his house and like blowing him off uh, to party. So when I came, it came time for me to graduate high school, um, some schools came to recruit me, but they all wanted to do that red shirt thing where he was going to have to pay for my first year of school. And he said, there's no way I'm doing that because you're just going to go and flunk out because I know that you're, you're out of control with the drinking and chasing girls and all that stuff. And he offered uh, for me to go into the military. I was graduating at 17. So he said, go into the army, you know, do at least two years. And once you're out of the army, you'll have your own college money. You'll be in great shape and you might grow up a little bit and not necessarily ruin the rest of your future. And he was going to buy me my first car. So I was like, hey, that sounds like a really good deal. Plus with the family history of the military. I knew that would make my grandparent, my grandfather's proud um, and my uncles that uh, were a big part of my life. So I entered the United States Army in 1989 and right off the bat, I went into airborne school and I was a light infantry combat engineer. My first duty station was Berlin, Germany. Wow. Two months after they took the first brick out of the wall. In, in 1989, when I finally got there, and the first night that I was in Berlin, I was blacked out drunk twice and went home with a, with a Fraulein, a very beautiful uh, German woman. So that's the lifestyle I led there. And I like to say that if it wasn't for the specialized training we were doing out in the mountains all the time and training to combat the Russians if they ever invaded, you know, nine, 10 months out of the year, uh, I would have been thrown out in my first year because I, you know, when we were in what's called in garrison, where you just hang out in a motor pool, you do your P, you, your physical training and stuff. If it, if I had a career where that was, you know, while I did, I'd have been thrown out in the first year because of my alcoholism. And uh, it, it, it was you, like, go ahead. Going back a little bit. So you, in high school, you were drinking all the time. What what was the frequency of drinking? And did you ever realize that young you had a problem or you just didn't even think about it? Yeah, uh, the frequency was definitely on the weekends. Um, but then there would be a couple nights a week where we, me and my boys would get a case of beer. And a buddy of mine had, his dad was a bachelor. So he had this bachelor pad in this place called the South Side of Pittsburgh. And the South side is kind of like Bourbon Street of Pittsburgh. There's bars, bars, women. I mean, it's just, it's debauchery times 10. Wow. So, um, yeah. So we would take like the underclass girls down there and get them drunk and, you know, have our parties and our way with them. And so it just, yeah, it never registered that this is wrong living, that this, be, that this is a problem because everybody 
just live like that where I grew up and the parties were in, insane. Yeah, so going back, you were talking about your military experience. Yes. So um, give me one second. There we go. So, yeah, once I got into the United States Army, um, got to Berlin, Germany, and like I said, it was it was nine months out of the year out in the mountains training. Those other three months, there were times where they had to send out a search party for me because I went out and got blacked out drunk, didn't know where I was at. I mean, I was I was just turning 19 when you know, this was all happening and there's no, there's no drinking age. I think 15 is the youngest you could be to get into a nightclub in Berlin. And if you got to a nightclub in Berlin before three o'clock in the morning, you were early. You were like the only people there. So we would get hammered drunk at the barracks, then go out and spend, you know, we 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, we're walking out of these places, always hammered, always with another female. And it just created that that lifestyle that, I mean, now I know it to be very toxic and, and not how a man should treat a woman or himself. And, uh, so I, I did those first two years in Berlin. I got deployed to desert storm. Um, so I spent nine months there. And then once I came back from desert storm, I was offered, um, that's when Bill Clinton got elected and I was offered a, a different duty station in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, or become, um, or I can get an early out with like a $5,000 bonus. So that's what I chose. I'm, I'm like, I'm not going from Berlin to tornado alley. It's, I'm good with that. Right. So yeah, I got out of the, out of the army guy, they gave me my five grand and uh, I went home back home to Pittsburgh after uh, four-year military career there and uh, so once I got back to Pittsburgh you know trying to learn how to find uh, some kind of life in the civilian world when all I've been trained to do is combat and combat engineers is explosives so there's not much of a calling out there in the private sector for for these types of persons yeah, no. and uh, yeah so Again, my family came calling. My my one of my uncles that used to play bar with me was a beer salesman for Iron City Beer, which is the big Pittsburgh classic beer. And uh, he, after about two months of me just sitting around on my butt, he said, um, "I got the perfect job for you." I said, "What's that?" And next thing you know, I get hired at a gentleman's club. Um, called fantasy show bar hmm. yeah yeah so this place was like the number one adult entertainment club in pittsburgh and holy cow i mean talk about finding it this this was like oh man this is life and so i started working there and with within like the first couple of weeks i was invited to my first after hours party uh, me, the security guys I work with, and about 10 or 15 strippers, and a big pile of cocaine comes out, and I'm like, what's that stuff? And they're looking at me like uh, like I'm from outer space. You don't know what that is. And I said, what, what is it? They're like, that's coke. I said, oh, is that what, you know, I had never been exposed to it. I don't yeah. know how. I don't know how at this point, but it's true. Um, so I, I did my first line. Uh, and boy, oh boy, did that really take off into, into something that uh, I, I, I used to regret. But through working my step work, I've been able to process and, and forgive myself for some of the things I've done. But uh, from the first time I did the first line of cocaine, within three weeks, I was selling it in mass quantities and just ruining lives. I mean, it, it was to the extent that after two years of working in this place, they, they told me, I, you know, Adam, you got to go. You're out of control. So that explains to you where my life was. I was so out of control that I was out of control for a giant, you know, a gentleman's titty bar, if you would, lack of a better term. You know, they were and this place was insane. I mean, it was rock star living without being the rock star. And I, I was I was. 
you know, I was like, fine, whatever. You know, I don't care. I didn't need your money anyway. I was making enough, you know, being the cocaine guy in Pittsburgh. So, so um, how did that go about? How did that come about? The cocaine, the being a seller of it. Yeah. So um, once, once I was introduced to it, I had friends. I mean, I had friends that used to sell me. I've smoked a lot of weed. I left that out. I was a copious pot smoker. I loved it. And I had a buddy of mine that, that used to sell me pounds. So I just asked him, I was like, what's the deal with this cocaine stuff? And he, and you know how the devil works, the devil works because it was the perfect time for me to have that conversation with him. I got the job and he was just branching out into that new area of drugs. So he had he had the connections and he was like dude we're gonna make a fortune and he was right i mean it was the timing of everything and yeah within a couple weeks um i don't know if many people know what a teener is but i would go into the club with a pocket full of these little envelopes of cocaine in one pocket and the girls would come up take one out of my pocket and then stuff the cash in my other pocket i was like a a Pez dispenser. You know, mm-hmm. Each one of those that I sold, you know, it was obviously taking somebody else down a bad road. Now that I look back on it and, and reflect through working my step work. Um, yeah. So it, it was, there were days and times where I thought my heart was going to explode because I was my own best customer at some point in time that just turned into, you know, speed. Cause I was already an adrenaline junkie from, going from playing football in high school to being in the military, being airborne, being out there and in, in combat, I was already this adrenaline junkie. Then I found speed. And so that's when white crosses also came out that ephedra stuff. And when I didn't, what is that? um, Some type of medication? It's speed that you, they used to sell it in gas stations, little, and they were little white pills with white crosses on them. We called them white. And it was ephedra. Remember ephedra? Isn't that what they used to cook meth with or something like that? Yeah, exactly right. Now it's, now it's behind the counter. It was, they out, they outlawed it. Um, Oh, really? But it seems to be making somewhat of a comeback, but they outlawed ephedra. Um, But at this time you could buy a bottle of 30 of those things over the counter and I was crushing those up and snorting them when I didn't have any cocaine. So I was just a hot mess. Um, and you know, this lifestyle as well, the working for this guy that owned this club, I mean, everywhere we went, people flocked to us. And like I said, I was always surrounded with, uh, professional hockey players, pro, pro wrestlers would come and party with us when they were in town. I even um, got hammered drunk with Bon Jovi one night. So it just created, it created this lifestyle of, wow, I, you know, I had really found my calling and I felt, I'll never forget this. There was a nightclub in downtown Pittsburgh called Chauncey's that we always went to on Sunday nights. And one night I took my mom with me and one of her friends and we walked into this place and within 10 minutes of, people seeing me come in to her and I finally getting a minute to have a drink. She said, Adam, you're, you're like a God in here. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> you know? and boy, does that give you a complex and some ego? Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. So, I mean, it was all about, I knew, I know now that they just wanted what was in my pocket or they just feared me. It was no actual love and respect of anything. It was all fear-based and, and, you know, using people, using people. And, uh, but after those couple of years, that went away because uh, they said, you got to go. So um, I, I went, kicked it around a little bit, uh, bounced in different little, little bars. And then one night I was at our local haunt, um, across the street from this club that just opened and called uh, club erotica in Pittsburgh. And me and my boys went over to uh, say hello to the new owner. And my one friend Armin looked at uh, the owner and said, if you want security, it's right here. 
And he walked me into the place. They were all, it was brand new in McKee's Rock. So there was a lot of fights, a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And basically hired me as like the cooler, the guy that was going to take care of all that stuff. And I brought in two of my own guys. And slowly but surely, we turned it into, it's still there today. And it's still the best show bar in Pittsburgh. And it was also run by the local mafia. So by the time I learned this, I was already being groomed to do certain other things. And uh, I, I had to stop the cocaine sales because they just don't abide by that. And um, but then I became a bookie uh, collector. Um, we, we I ran girls. We did a lot of, uh, you know, parties where I was, you know, pimping girls out, basically, you know, um, and that was my life. I ran gambling establishments. I was on a lot of steroids then, too, because they wanted me bigger and badder every single day. And I, I created a lot of havoc in people's lives. And, uh, you know, it, they, I always had a semblance of a heart, which it was slowly but surely turning to stone. But because every time I hurt somebody physically and even emotionally, I always had to numb that. And that's when I just started drinking heavily. I mean, there was... There wasn't a night of the week where I didn't drink an entire bottle of Sambuca on the rocks and smoke a quarter, a quarter gram of, you know, of marijuana. So I was just numbing everything. And when I didn't numb it, then I was being a monster. And I, I did that for the better part from 95 until 99, 2000. And um, I had a little girl in, in the midst of that. Uh, I, I knew I had to find a different way to live. And so I started roofing and I decided if I'm going to leave this, this job, I'm going to take a trophy with me. So I married um, my daughter, Catherine's mother. Uh, she was a very damaged woman, like most of those females that work in those places were, but and it just didn't work. Um, she had issues, still has issues. And, uh, you know, but we have this beautiful daughter between the two of us. And one thing led to another, and I was, you know, outcasted from her life because of the things I was doing uh, for a living. And so that, that led up to, you know, still drinking, still partying, still doing my thing, because, again, it, I had power over people. I had, I was feared. I was respected, which I know now, again, was just all fear-based. And people just wanting what I could give them and me wanting them for what they could give me. There was no healthy relationships in any of it. I couldn't even have a healthy relationship with my own little girl. So um, her mother met another guy. They got married. And slowly but surely, our, our relationship got further and further apart between uh, my daughter and I. So um, my mother came to me. And one of uh, our family friends had told her exactly what I was doing for a living. Uh, this was in 2000. She came to me and said, you got to change or you're never going to see your daughter again. You're going to get shot and killed. Something awful is going to happen. So the first time I did a lead in an AA meeting, I tell this story and everybody busts out laughing because I went from working at Club Erotica to being a nursing assistant. Yeah. <laughs> And taking care of people, right? So everybody thinks that's get a good chuckle out of that. Um, so yeah, I I was still doing my thing at night, but being a nurse, trying to cycle myself out of there and living in fear that, you know, I knew a lot of stuff, you know, and people just don't walk away from that lifestyle knowing a lot of stuff. So I lived in fear for quite a while after making the transition. Um, that first year of my life, um, but by the grace of God, some other guy came on the, on the scene that wanted it more than me. So they just cycled him in, cycled me out. And uh, I was a nursing assistant for about eight or nine months. And again, I was taking care of terminally ill people. I met a girl. 
and she was coming in from New York City to be by her terminally ill grandfather's bedside. And she was one of those women that was just like almost afraid to look at because she she was so beautiful and so like gentle and just really I was very attracted to that. And so she was attracted to the, me taking care of her grandfather. Long story short, we started, we went out on a couple of dates. He passed away. I went, you know, I was by her side through all that. And here she was a performer in, uh, ca- at Cabaret on in the old Studio 54 up there in Manhattan. She was mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the performers in, in Cabaret. So we did the long distance relationship for a little while. And then she popped the question and said, do you want to, you know, you, me and my daughter were estranged. I had no attachments and invited me to move up to uh, New York City. I was like, sure, let me let me close shop here. And she was going to come in with a moving van uh, to get the stuff. Some of the things that her grandfather had left her, like a roll top desk and whatnot. And the weekend that she was um, trying to come down, she couldn't get a moving van. Um, that Monday was was when 9-11 happened. Uh, so if she'd have got the moving van and got came and got me that weekend, I would have literally been standing at ground zero because she rehearsed down there. I'd have literally been standing there when the first plane hit the towers that Monday. So the very next weekend she came and got me and we drove in from the Newark side and, you know, saw that awful sight, the the smoke and and billowing out from ground zero. And uh, so I moved in with her and things are all right in the beginning. Um, We, you know, we were just partying, you know, going to after casting cat, whatever that's called parties afterwards, the after party party. And um, then I, I said to her, I have to, I have to see that, you know, I have to pay my respects. And her and I walked down to ground zero and that, that vision of that thing is in still instilled in my head. And immediately I, I knew, I, I knew that I was going to have to do something about it because I always had this overprotective, hypervigilant savior complex you know to protect those that can't fight for themselves and i was always taught revenge when i was a kid you know somebody messes with you you mess with them and you don't bully people but you can you know go after the bullies and so one thing led to another and she decided to go out onto the road uh travel with cabaret and i re-enlisted in the united states military in 2001 um, my grandfather pulled some strings, had to, I was honorably discharged. However, there was a condition because I was deemed to have a, a drinking problem, not alcoholic. They never used that word. So I had to go to like a 14 day treatment center because I wanted to go into a specialized training. I wanted to go into becoming an army ranger. So one thing led to another. My grandfather, who was a command sergeant major, when he retired, pulled some strings. One thing led to another. And I went in 13 months later. Uh, this was November 14th of 2001 that I reentered. And I became an Army Ranger and got deployed three more times in my lifetime up until 2012. Uh, July 2012, I was combat wounded, which uh, brought the pain pills into my life. How'd you um, How'd you get wounded? It was an IED, uh, an IED explosion. Um, we were out on patrol outside of Jalalabad, uh, Afghanistan. The IED went off, and six people were killed, and I was blasted into a coma. Um, ruptured discs in my lower back and my neck and my legs right still to this day is numb. So I had to do some, uh, I was at Walter Reed for a year and a half doing some, you know, learning how to walk again. I have a 38, uh, 
staples in my head from from the blast as well. And so yeah, when I woke up uh, finally from this thing they, in Frankfurt, they sent me to Ranheim Air Force Base to their military hospital. There I had. IV in one arm, pumping morphine and Dilaudid and, and Haldol and Thorazine into this other thing because when I would wake up and, or start to come to, I was just snapping out because the last thing I remembered was boom. And so they just started pumping me with those drugs, pumping me. So again, my addictive gene kicked in. So now I'm already, you know, two months into this stuff being pumped into me, I'm already addicted to it. So without even knowing it. So once they sent me back stateside to Walter Reed, excuse me. Um, so there I'm rehabbing and, you know, we're drinking, have people bringing us stuff in to, you know, lighten our spirits. So I'm drinking. I love Jameson whiskey. I'm doing Jameson and I'm popping Percocets. And, you know, just created that monster. I, I found, I, you know, the pain pills really numbed everything. It just made me feel great. It gave me the, the energy to, uh, to recover, to go to therapy, to do the physical therapy. It, it numbed all the combat feelings. It numbed everything, you know, as a lot of us know. And uh, so, yeah, I was there until 2013, a uh, whole year. And then uh, I got sent back to Pittsburgh. Uh, so here comes the hometown hero. And military is very respected where I come from. Like literally the first two years, I didn't even pay for one drink. Uh, anytime I went into a bar, here he comes. It's on me. It's on me. So, I mean, I was obliviated. You know, I, I really had no idea who I was, what I was, what I was going to be, because I was hammered, drunk, high on pills. And of course, they started doing cocaine again, you know, because that's just the, the triple hitter there. Right. You got the trifecta. Uh, the problem with that was the VA tests you, drug tests you before they give you your prescriptions for your pain meds. At least they just started that. So here I am addicted to, I'm on four of those Oxy 30s a day and uh, Soma for spasms and I'm drinking and doing cocaine. So every, pretty much every time I show up to pee, I'm popping positive for cocaine. And this doctor put up with me for about a year and a half. She just kept telling me the next time, the next time, the next time I'm going to cut you off. You better stop doing that shit the next time I'm going to cut you off. And I was like, she just keeps saying this. It's not happening. So why would I stop? Well, eventually that, that came due, that bill came due. And she said, this is it. Uh, and wrote me a two week prescription and said, you need to, to wean yourself off because the VA will never prescribe you another painkiller again. And I was like, wow, you know, what do I do now? So uh, after that ran out, I started buying them off the street. And then uh, that's one day, and I've heard this story a bunch of times, where somebody says to you, why are you spending so much money on these 30s? You can get this stuff right here for $10 a bag. And it was heroin. <laughs> Which I swore I would never do. Never. Because my aunt got addicted to it and I saw what happened to her and I knew people that were addicted to it and I saw what happened to all them. And I just, you know, that's one of those yets. Um, Cause I, I, that was beneath me, you know, shooting drugs into my arms were beneath me until they weren't. And um, yeah, heroin and that's back when it was heroin. It wasn't this crazy shit that's out there now that's killing everybody. I mean, granted, people overdosed from heroin, but this stuff out there now, I, I, I had four overdoses from it before getting clean and sober. Um, so, yeah, that's, that was just a nightmare. Uh, I got addicted to that, 
in uh, 2015. I, I tried it the first time. Within seven months, my life was completely ruined. <clears throat> I had gotten remarried to my now ex-wife. I had another daughter who just turned eight. Um, so I have Catherine and Morgan. And um, yeah, I just, they didn't matter to me anymore. Nothing mattered to me except not getting dope sick and being high. And uh, that's all I, that's, uh, that's how I lived. That's all I lived to do. I stole, I robbed, I connived. I did everything under the sun to make sure I didn't run out of that stuff. And then uh, she finally looked at me December of 2017. She looked at me and said, you need help. She said, I know that there's a good heart inside of you, but you need help. You have too many demons. And that's the first time I went to treatment. I um, went to a place called the Wellness Center in Florida, in Jensen Beach, Florida. It's now not there anymore. And it was the first time that I started to get some peace back in my life. You know, I detoxed off of everything. Um, did the did the detox, the PHP, the IOP, uh, spent six months, never got like the real opportunity to start working the steps. Um, and then I, I've met a guy, I was running out of money because I hadn't gotten my, my retirement and all that stuff set yet. Um, I was fighting it at the time to get my VA benefits. And uh, so I ran out of money. So I'm like, I got to go home because I, I also, uh, I left out a little portion where I learned how to weld. That's during these, these years while I was, you know, getting all the drinks bought for me in Pittsburgh, I became a welder so I could make a good living welding and not have to struggle in Florida. Plus I had her and I had Morgan. So I left Florida and came back and the problem there was uh, I had created so much me and my disease had created so much damage that there was no acceptance Uh, she couldn't accept the time I had to spend in recovery going to meetings because I got when I got back to Pittsburgh I hit the ground running you know I was doing all the work um, got a sponsor doing all those things. And she eventually was just un, un, unable to accept that that's what I had to do on a daily basis. So I was no good to her high, no good to her sober. And then it, it just ended. Um, she, she actually started to see somebody behind my back um, cheated on me in our marriage. And, you know, I had a part in that. I had a definite part in that. She felt like drugs were my mistress and she was right. You know, I put them ahead of her for a long time and more. And, um, so yeah, she asked me for a divorce, threw me out. She actually had me 302'd in order to get me thrown out. <laughs> and, uh, what, is, what does that mean? What is 302'd? It's the maker acted where they have you committed you know, to a psych ward. Oh, I've heard um, of this before. I've actually interviewed other people from Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, they call it Baker Act down here, but, uh, up there it's called a 302 where your family can have, she could just say, I was, you know, said something suicidal and, and have me locked up for involuntarily. Yeah. Um, and during that course of the time, she had already had divorce papers drawn up and served them to me while I was on the psych ward in Pittsburgh. And I was like, holy shit, you know, my life is, what are, I'm no good to anybody. I'm no good clean and sober. I'm no good high. I'm, what am I going to, you know, I was just, so I got the, you know, threw away nine months of clean living. Um, because I was going to show them by hurting me. That was one of my main cycles in my life. You know, if I got stopped using it from time to time and somebody, you know, that I loved and admired would, would get on, you know, start treating me a certain way that I didn't like, I would show them by hurting me and, you know, go out and use again. And so from that, that year, from November of 2018 up until uh, 2020, December, 
I had overdosed probably around 10 times. I got my, I got my VA benefits, which was uh, close to four grand a month still is. I was living with my mother in Pittsburgh and I would just sit there and wait for my money to go in my account. I'd pay my rent to her and then go to a hotel room and disappear for a week on end until the money was all gone. Then I would end up on the psych ward again. And it was just an awful cycle. And by all means, by my own design, I I should be dead. There's, this is what affirms my belief in in my higher power. There's no other way that I'm sitting here today if there's not some divine intervention going on here, because I was brought back to life so many times that I, I don't, I can't even fathom at this point. If I actually sit and think about it, it's terrifying. Uh, when, when did you first recognize that, oh, oh, you know, I have a problem and that I need help? Um, well, that, that that was when she said that to me in December before I came to my first treatment. She was right. I mean, I was shooting uh, close to a, bon- a brick a day of heroin. Um, that's how high my tolerance level got. And so I realized that I had huge issues. Um, and but then you you go and you get sober for somebody else, so it doesn't it doesn't sink in as much as when you do it for yourself. So that's when I recognized and I, I admitted that powerlessness over that disease in in December of 2018. But then I just I mean <laughs> that entire year almost two years after she divorced me, I, I, my, I was just hiding and shooting and, and it was just a huge problem. I mean, especially at the bitter end, the bitter end, um, came my birthday. I had turned, uh, 49 December 5th, um, of 2019. Wait, no, I'm sorry. 2020. I would just, my birthday, I just got paid and I went into the, my hotel room, the comfort in suites on route 60 in Pittsburgh room 221. They even had a room for me. Uh, that's how frequently I did this. And I was literally awake without sleep for 14 days and ate a half a piece of pizza in 14 days. Uh, I had a bottle, a handle and a half of Bacardi 151. I also had a big pile of Coke and crack. And then when that would all run out, I would shoot some heroin to, to try and get some sleep. But that didn't help either. So for 14 days, I stayed awake um, until there was a little knock on the door. And it was the housekeeper. And I knew this lady. So she knocks on the door and I I answer it, which was totally abnormal because when we're that high, we ain't answering doors. I had had toilet paper stuffed in the people so nobody could see in, you know? (laughs) And um, she said, Adam, honey, what's going on? Who's in there with you? And I said, nobody. Why? And I, I showed her. She said, baby, I've been standing out here for 15 minutes listening to you talk to four different people four different languages, four different voices. I'm calling 911. That's how delusional I was. I was literally having conversations with four different people in four different languages, four different voices, and it was all me. It was me doing this stuff. That's how out of my mind I was. So she um, she said, I'm calling 911. You're going to die. And I said, okay, you're right. And I went in and shot one more big ass or you know how we we do when you're that desperate and guilt and shame and remorse kick in i was like i'm gonna end this finally because that that was the whole design the whole design each time that i went into those hotel rooms wasn't to live it was to die it was wasn't to get high it was to go out in a nice you know rock and roll style ending you know just nobody cared because nobody showed up the only people that showed up were people that wanted to get high for free and then eventually I'd throw them out because it was time for me to just, you know, end it. And um, so that was, 
the awfulness of it, right? I knew each time I went to that hotel room, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is it. I'm not coming out of here this time. And so this very last time that uh, I went to that hotel, they, they, by the time they got there, they had to Narcan me back to life and actually had to zap me couple times back to life I was in full cardiac arrest and I was rushed to the hospital and this was uh like the second week of December so in 2020 so then uh I get out of the hospital my mother takes me home and she lets me relax for a day or two clear the cobweb she comes downstairs I was just hiding out in her game room just totally blacked out just me, the recliner, and the TV. And uh, she looked at me and she said, baby, I, you got to get out. You got to get out of my house. Uh, you got to go back to Florida. Because she remembered that she got her son back. When I came back from Florida from treatment that first time, I was brimming and beaming, you know, on that pink cloud. But there was a different aura to me. I was healthier. I didn't have the dark ring. She saw her son that she remembered from my earlier life. Um, not that she's ever up until now had her real son, because I was always being some, some other you know, person told me to be. Um, so I listened to her uh, in December of 2020. I was like, you know what? You're right. And this time I had the money to sustain life through my service to, to the country so that I didn't have to worry about leaving Florida once I got there. The trick was getting me there because um, now I'm feeling the guilt and shame of I got to leave my family. I got to leave my daughters. I got to leave, you know, all these people I love behind. And then I started to feel like a coward. Like there was just, you know, not even a man, but I wasn't a man anyway. I was just some vile substance that people scrape off their shoe when I was out there doing the crazy stuff I was doing. So I buy myself a first class ticket. Uh, the VA in Pittsburgh booked me a, a room at the VA in West Palm Beach. I got myself a Christmas present. So I go to the airport, start drinking because, you know, I'm going to going into treatment. Let's start drinking. It's so stupid. And uh, so I start drinking. I did a couple lines. And I'm like, all right, so I need to mellow out so they don't know I'm all jacked up. Because usually with the dope, I was shooting this the same dope, this fentanyl and everything. Well, I went into the bathroom and just, go ahead. You were shooting fentanyl? Yeah. On purpose? Yeah. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was fentanyl, car fentanyl, but they were calling it heroin. You know, And, and I knew that when it was white, it was that. When it was brown, it was heroin. When it was because that's just the the difference. I know that heroin's white in certain parts of the country, but not in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, the heroin's brown, and the, and the car fentanyl and stuff is white. So I knew what I was getting and getting into. So uh, I went into the bathroom after getting through TSA um, and snorted a couple bags of this stuff, thinking you know I usually shoot it. I'm going to snort a couple. I'll be fine. So I get on the airplane, plane takes off, and I check out. I overdosed on the airplane on the way to treatment. And this is where God comes in because I had tried to find a direct flight from Pittsburgh to West Palm Beach, which is usually very easy. And I couldn't do that. So I had an hour layover in Charlotte. And this is why. Because if I'd have had the direct flight from Pittsburgh to West Palm Beach, I would have been dead when we landed. So it was just like an hour flight from Pittsburgh to Charlotte, hour and a half. And I woke up surrounded by paramedics that had just had to Narcan me six times back to life. And that was my aha moment. Um, I got in the back of the ambulance. Uh, they took me to the emergency room to make sure I wasn't going to overdose again after the after the Narcan wore off. And in the back of that ambulance was just one of them angels, uh, those EMTs that deal with this on a daily basis. 
and I just lost it. It seemed like I was in the back of this ambulance for two hours. Meanwhile, I was like a 20 minute ride and I just gave it all to her. Sitting there, streams of tears coming out of my face, telling her about everything. And she looked at me and uh, she had the COVID mask on, but she had these cobalt blue eyes. And she looked right at me and she goes, you know what? You're just a big pussy from Pittsburgh, ain't you? She said, when are you going to man up and stop doing this to yourself? And boy, did that like just talk right over my head. And for some reason that just resonated, resonated because I, uh, I still had some of that same dope in my pocket. No cop ever showed up to search me at the airport. No cop showed up on the way or while I was there to search and see if I had any more of these drugs on me, which was another miracle because I had I had a good amount of drugs on me. So I went into the ER and my plan was get a hotel room for that night, then go to go to the VA. And when I walked out of that emergency room, I I had that dope in my hand. It was a bundle. It was like nine bags of that same stuff that just almost killed me. And I, I stuffed it in the flower bed outside of the Charlotte hospital, which I'm sure I probably owe them some new flowers because they probably died pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I haven't touched anything since. Uh, that was the 31st of December, uh, 2020. Um, since then, I've been clean and sober, uh, and it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. I immediately went to the VA, um, spent a month there until I could find a sober house, sober living house, which I found in uh, Stewart, Florida. Um, little plug, it's called Dove's Nest. It's very good. It's all men, no co-ed. They have a very structured program, seven meetings a week, 90 meetings in 90 days. Uh, great, beautiful location. Uh, surrounded by this place called Fellowship Hall, which I had found when I went down in 2018. And uh, so Fellowship Hall was, it's like one of those meeting clubhouses where they have 80 some meetings a week. Wow. Every single, yeah, every single type you can, which was great because at this time with the COVID, all those meeting places were shut down in most of the country. Well, not Florida. Florida was like, you know, screw it. This is we're we're recovery. So, and they had these meetings all the time. So, um, my first meeting when I moved up to Stewart, I went to Sunday night young people, uh, seven o'clock fellowship hall. Is still my home group, and I met my sponsor. He did his lead that night. His name is Marcus. That man saved my life. I owe him a lot. Uh, he took a hot mess under his wing. <laughs> I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was. I knew I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, but that was it. And, uh, you know, always turn into that stuff to process any emotion from anger to love to this to that, good ones, bad ones. You just don't know who the hell you are, how to process anything. And that's started at the age of four, you know? So they, they, I've heard this a bunch of times, you know, from your first time you had your first drink or substance, that's how old you are when you come into recovery. So he got saddled with a 48 year old, four year old. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he's a good man. He just celebrated 20 years um, in February. And he, I walked up to him after the meeting and I said, will you sponsor me? And he said, what are you willing to do? Without hesitation. And I said, whatever it is you tell me to do. And it saved my life. It really did. Complete surrender. I was done because I knew I was done. I, I know that the next time I do any of that stuff, I'm I'm not coming back. I, I just don't have it in me. And I'm not willing for the 24 hours to even test those waters. Um, I think God saved me enough for my own self. And, uh, you know, now it's time for me to try and help others to 
to save their, themselves. And that's the most rewarding portion is um, giving myself and my time to some new to a newcomer. I got three new sponsees right now. And, you know, seeing the process and, and how it works is incredible. You know, from step one to step two to step three, doing the step three prayer and him looking at me and saying, you just became, you know, you're not the center of the universe anymore. You don't have to take all the problems that you've taken on in your life and wear them on your shoulders anymore. You just turn it over to your higher power, processing uh processing in, 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 in a healthy manner, all these feelings and emotions that we get, you know, once we get rid of the alcohol and the drugs, which are just a symptom, we're still left with the problem, which is us, which is me. I'm the problem without that stuff still. And um, so that's what I've learned you know, every morning that I wake up before my big old size 15s touch the ground, I have untreated alcoholism and addiction. And what, getting with a guy like this who is a total godsend is, is afforded me and treated and taught me is to have that structured program. I get up in the morning, have my coffee, get with my higher power. I do my readings. I do some meditation. I go to the gym. I go to my meeting. And then a couple of days a week, I'm sponsoring guys. And whenever the hand of AA or NA reaches out, I, I, I love going to treatment facilities and sharing my experience, strength, and hope on the ground floor with those men or women. And it's this has been the most rewarding chapter of my life. It, it's it's incredible the transformation from a year and four months ago to now. Uh, I was just completely and utterly demoralized like the like my book tells me and nobody or no thing wanted anything else to do with me they just they didn't want any parts of what I was doing to myself and I was totally and utterly isolated desolate damaged you know guilt shame all those things that are the opposite of what we learn in recovery I was every one of those I was the doctor's opinion you know um the people in the doctors in Pittsburgh can affirm this. They looked at me at, at the point when they sent me to West Palm Beach VA and he said, Adam, we, we can't help you anymore. You're outside the scope of our help. You need that moral psychology that it talks about. And uh, yeah, so meeting Marcus and getting, working the 12 steps, you know, um, August the last year, I went back to Pittsburgh. I did my step nine with my daughter, my daughter, Catherine, who's 26, with my mom, my stepdad, who just passed away in January. So it was perfect timing for that, for him to make that transition because he had stage four cancer to know that, you know, he's with my mother for 25 years, but to know that she has her son in a good manner of life. I think eased his transition so that he doesn't, you know, at the end of his, his, his life. And then there was my dad, my stepmom, my grandmother, uh, the ones I, I wrote the letters for the posthumous where I went to grave sites of my pap and my, my grandparents and the two soldiers that I was really embedded with in, in, in my military career. And I was able to make amends to them and, Talk about a change, a radical change. That's when uh, the ninth step promises, just without even knowing it, I started recognizing them. Like, wow, you know, this is actually coming true. Um, yeah, it was good. At, at, and the best part of the, the trip home in August, so I have a best friend. His name's Tony D., since we were in kindergarten and um, I knew he had turned his house into a trap house. He was just on death's doorstep. And uh, when I went home that my final part of my trip was to do a 12 step call with him. And he actually has gone to treatment and is down here living with me now in, in Stewart in a sober house with seven months of sobriety. And before that, uh, took place, I went to our local police station in McKee's Rocks to talk to a couple friends that we have on on the police force. And 
it talks about you know the unguarded moment when you when you don't even see an amends coming that you're getting that you're going to make one and these two police officers that cut me down out of the cell that I tried to hang myself in one time when I was just out there insane pulled in and I got to make an amends to them and you know they they didn't even recognize me you know they were like wow dude you you we where you been I said Florida because they were so used to you know hearing there's another suicide and it was me because I was just that insane um uh, pulled me down off the side of a bridge once cut me down out of a cell I was always just on their radar and when I made the amends to them I said, how can I, I know I made your job harder, your lives harder, put you in peril and you have enough to handle in this neighborhood already. How can I make that right? And they both looked at me and said, you've given us hope that if we continue to do our job, one of you will get out of here. And the next thing I know, I'm hugging cops in the middle of a <laughs> <the> police station. <laughs> Which, you know, we resent them, right? We resent who they are because they're they're buzzkills, you know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was really awesome. And I continue to work the steps today. Uh, step 10, 11, and 12, uh, powerless every single day. I that's, that's a big portion of my recovery is realizing that I'm powerless. I'm powerless over what anybody else in this world is going to do except me and it, it, my choice of what to do with what's happening. What, when life gets lifey, when things happen, I no longer have to turn to drugs and alcohol. I have a structured, wonderful recovery family um, down here in this beautiful place. Um, no longer up there where there's 50, so you know what I'm talking about. Where there's 56 days of sunshine yeah. in Pittsburgh. Yeah. But uh I find there's good people there too in recovery. They're just a little more cranky because they don't get so much sunlight. But <laughs> yeah, Florida's been great. Um, I was actually just in Pittsburgh last week um, for my daughter's eighth birthday. Was able to take her out and show her a really good time. Um, she spent two days with me, and then uh, my stepdad that I mentioned, uh, Bill. This is a man that threatened to shoot me on sight many times because of how insane I was. After my step nine amends with him, he put me in his will and gave me his truck, which was like his baby. Um, so the portion of the trip, because my mommy wouldn't let me drive it home in the snow because we went back for his funeral in January. Yeah, mom still got that power over me. Um, so yeah, it was perfect timing. We went up and saw Morgan for her eighth birthday. We had a great time. And then I drove a beautiful brand new Toyota Tundra home because nice. the nine step the nine step promises work. You know, he he just saw the change. And for anybody that's listening, I, I learned this in a meeting when you do that step nine though. You'll hear a lot of people say apologize. And what I was taught was, and this is just a suggestion, but um, when we say we're sorry when making that amends, that's us keeping control of that situation, whether we mean to or not. And how many times have our family, family and friends heard, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So to be that, put ourselves in that vulnerable position where Bill didn't hear me say, I'm sorry. He heard me acknowledge the things that I did and asked him, how can I make that right? Which put the ball in his court. You know, it's still him accepting a certain form of apology, but not in the same manner. And that changed the dynamic of our relationship. And, and also my daughter, my mother, my dad, it was the first time that I did this with them. And they didn't hear, I'm sorry. They heard, this is what I did to you. This is why it really wasn't me. How can I make it right? And every single one of them told me, have a great life. Stay this guy. Stay on the path. This is our son. This is the guy we want around. We're tired of worrying about getting that phone call that you're, that you're you know, dead somewhere in some hotel room. 
and the gifts just keep piling up. And uh, there's, there's, I used to say, there's nothing I won't do for recovery. The only thing I won't do now for recovery is co-sign any kind of sponsee bullshit um, because that's, my guys didn't do that with me. They were brutally honest with me when I didn't want them to be. I wanted them to give me that pat on the ass. Now I'm a nurturing man. There's certain instances where I'll comfort and everything, but once I know I'm being lied to while doing step work, because it's honest, the open-mindedness and willingness that keeps us alive. Uh, I do it in a very nurturing way, not like ah, you know, yell at somebody like some yeah. ogre. But yeah, that's that's the only thing I won't do because I know that that process is trying to save that person's life. And I'm trying to keep them accountable for their recovery. But it is their recovery. But it keeps helping me stay sober, helping these guys, reading this book and praying with them. And it's it's really a great life. I I can't. It's from. <laughs> where I was to where I am today is definitely a miracle of recovery. Sounds like it. You got a great story there. Thank you. I want to thank you for sharing it with us. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. My last question, which I ask everybody is, would you have any advice for people that are listening and watching? Um, absolutely. My advice would be, that if you're of the alcoholic type that I was, the drug addicted type that I was, to just give yourself a break and give yourself a shot at doing this and then find yourself that person. Find yourself that person that's going to teach you how to have a healthy new relationship based on trust and honesty and willingness and open-mindedness because that's what that's what I learned just recently and looking back is that's what these men were teaching me because I never had healthy relationships with anybody, but now I do. And those healthy relationships afforded me to be able to trust others with my, with my stuff and to grow past it. So stay teachable, allow yourself to be sponsored and then make sure you give it back because we only keep what we have by giving it back and trust God. All right. That's awesome. Thank so you. for everybody that's watching or listening, I just want to say thank you. And if you liked what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to the channel so you'll get updated when we get videos uploaded. Also check us out on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram. If you go to our Facebook page, and you go look at the events tab, you'll see that we do nightly meetings for Zoom, which is 6.30 every night, Eastern Standard Time. And check out addicts-anonymous.com. From there, you can find different resources and literature available. And that's all I have for right now. So until next time.